My name's John. It's good to be with you. I am not Pastor Joe. Um, Last time I had the privilege and honor of speaking here, I think I had the topic of sexual immorality. So I think today maybe I'll talk about something a little lighter like money or predestination. (laughs) What do you think? But it's good to be with you. If you're brand new to church or you're watching online, welcome to Next Community Church. Uh, It's our privilege and honor to have you here. Uh, What we've been doing for the last few months is just very simply going through a book of the Bible, that's 1 Thessalonians, kind of line by line, verse by verse, and seeing what God is saying through Paul to a local church. And I think that's really important because if we're going to stake our lives and we're going to stake what we do as a church and the Word of God, understanding what it says and the context that it is and, you know, how that relates to us is super important. It's important because God is making it very clear that the hope of the world 2,000 years ago in the hope of the world now and continue until he returns is Jesus, but he operates through a local body of believers. And I think we, uh, that became ever more evident over the past two years through shutdowns and things like that, that people need each other and the world needs to see a hope and it needs to see a solid church in the midst of a time of great confusion. And what Paul is writing here throughout this chapter, but many times in the New Testament, it serves as a comfort and it serves as a roadmap for how to live. I think it serves as a comfort because we know when Paul talks to them through troubled times, he's going to encourage that church, hey, no matter what, God is with you. And that's the same thing that God is saying to us. It's that same God that we just spoke about, what he did for Israel, what he did for David. He's that same God who's faithful to us right now. And I think it's a roadmap because... That was near exactly 2,000 years ago, but that culture, you know, we have technology now, but it's not too dissimilar to ours. It's a culture that is increasingly wicked, and God is taking a people who's very peculiar and very diverse and trying to mix them and show them how to live and engage their culture. And the last few weeks, we just focused on what that means to be ready for the coming of the Lord. So we talked about the signs of the end times, and God is never going to give us the exact roadmap or how that's going to look. I think that would freak us out too much, but Joe rightly showed us, hey, how can you be aware? What signs and seasons are we looking for so we know how to live, so we know how to tell people about Jesus? So even understanding the age uh, and the things that are going on right now, how this could maybe be that kind of groaning, the birth pains, you know, this freaks some people out. I think it freaks some kids out. Uh, I grew up a little different. So I grew up like uber Pentecostal, and my dad was a pastor. I talked about it last time. Uh, but he had this big chart in his office. And when you're a pastor's kid, is there any pastor's kids with us here? Yeah. Um, when you're sick from school, you don't stay home. You just like go to your dad's office and read all the weird books about eschatology, the end times. And my dad had a chart that was like a map, like this is when that's gonna happen. So if I'm like seven, eight years old, I'm trying to figure out when this happened. And maybe you're here and you're like, I'm scared about the rapture. Like is it pre-trib, post-trib, things like that? I thought that happened like a million times before I was age 10. I was like, I heard a train, that's the trumpet sound, and here I am, I'm left behind. Like I need to get saved again. I just keep, I have to keep getting saved. Hopefully what we're going to look at today is a little bit more simple, and we're just going to instruct and be encouraged by it. I would encourage you, I think the point of all this is that there's not some secret knowledge. Whoever is speaking behind a podium, read the exact same Bible. So I think it's encouraging us to be biblically literate as a church. The Bible is a source of all truth. It's God's message to us. It transcends time. It transcends language. So we should be very aware of what God says through his word. So when I open up and read it, I'm reading the same words as you. We can talk about some of the things that maybe stuck out to me. But where we're going to drop in today is just four or five simple verses. At the end of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians are going to be on the screen. You can open your Bible. 
and I'm going to read them for us. Paul says this to the church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Just four or five simple verses. And where we're going to start is verse 23. And Paul says this to his church. Just talk to them about the end times. Talk to them about troubles. And he says, all right, I'm wrapping up. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This is easy to miss. You know, I tell you, the first time I read this series of verses, I missed it completely. I'm like, he's just saying goodbye. But he's not. The words are super important. The words that are used in the Bible, I think we really need to pick apart because the authors use them specifically on purpose. I'm 40 now. About 20 years ago, I had what I would say like a crisis of faith where I wasn't sure kind of really what I believed. I knew the Bible a little bit uh, just from kind of growing up culturally, but I got hung up in Genesis. I got hung up on the words. I got hung up on Genesis chapter 1 when it talks about creation and describes God. It calls God a word in the Hebrew called Elohim. And then if it moves on in chapter 2, 3, it's, uh, you know, a slightly different name where it's Yahweh Elohim. And throughout the Old Testament, you're seeing a lot of different names for God. And in my mind, this created a massive divide. Like, to be honest, it lasted the better part of a year in my life where I'm like, um... I think what I'm seeing here, and some of my thoughts came from the college I was going to time. I was like, hey, actually, the Israelites started out polytheistic. And then you see across the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, uh, you know, they're slowly moving towards monotheism. So when you see those names for God, what you're seeing is polytheism going to monotheism. It's nothing miraculous at all. And that shook me up until I dug into it. How this is going to relate is important in a second, but just so we understand that divide there, the reason those words are used by the author, which is probably Moses, is that Elohim is kind of a general term for God in the Hebrew. Uh, it could describe the triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. It could describe uh, God and his holy ones, the holy host of heaven that we're going to see throughout the Bible a lot, the holy host of God. We get pictures of this. It's pretty mysterious in like the book of Ezekiel or the book of Isaiah or the book of Psalms. Uh, it could mean the Benahe Elohim. And then it goes to Yahweh Elohim. That's that personal God. When he reveals himself to Moses, reveals himself to Israel, that's the I am God. Like, I am the all-sustaining one. I don't need you. I'm not served by your hands. I've always been. I always will be. I am Yahweh. All throughout the Bible, we're going to see different names to describe God. When we go to Greek, we're going to see many different names. In English, we see a word like love, and we're like, okay, love is patient. Love is kind. Those are all different kinds of love, which Joe talked about. You know, brotherly love. We have romantic love. Same thing for God. Same thing if you're a dad in this room. You know, there's people who know you. They have a different level, level of familiarity with you. Your kids might call you dad. Someone else might call you your name. Your wife calls you something else. That's the same thing that we see here too. But when we drop into this verse, we see that Paul says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Maybe this is really nerdy for you. This is just kind of where I feel God took me. What Paul is saying here is theos irene. That means the God of peace. And this term theos irene is used many times throughout the New Testament. It can refer to the peace between people, the peace that exists among believers. It can refer to the peace that you found when you first received salvation, when you first met Jesus. It's that peace that passes all understanding. It can mean the peace that exists after death. And all these things are important. 
But what Paul is really saying here is, this is the peace that exists between people. He's telling the church to be unified. Unity is hard. It is. Divisions arise really quickly. Uh, sometimes about important things that there needs to be division. Sometimes they're about really silly things. And over the last 2,000 years, we've seen untold heresies and false teachers and church splits and reformations and things like that. Some of them good, some of them not so good. But any surefire way Paul knew and God knew is to divide a movement, especially a new movement, is to cause disunity. You know, especially between cultures that people are coming from. You know, what God was doing in this people, if we just zoom out and understand it, they, they weren't so much people all from the same region, the same language. It was two vastly different cultures. It was people coming out of a Jewish background. So they're coming from the law. There's people coming from a Greek cultural background. So no law at all. So for the Jewish believers, when they got saved and met Jesus, they were still stuck running through rituals and customs. They were trying to figure out what food they could eat, what food they could not eat and still be a believer. If they, someone sacrificed food to idols, can they have that? This even happened with one of the church fathers, Peter. So we know Peter, you know, Jesus' disciple, walked on water for a little bit, cut off the ear. You know, after Jesus ascended and Peter was a church father, he still struggled with how to act among Jewish believers and among non-Jewish Gentile believers. So much so that Paul has to oppose Peter. He writes about it like, hey, I'm going to oppose you because you're acting like a hypocrite. Another thing that the Jewish believers tried to do is when Gentiles would come in, they would had a big discussion on whether to circumcise the adult men, which is crazy. So just think about it. You know, I'm 40. I'm coming in. I'm like, I really like this Jesus you're talking about. You're like, yeah, it's great. We're glad you're here. We just have one more thing that you need to do. And that's circumcision. And they'd be like, yeah, no, we're good. We've been this way for our whole lives. We'll take everything else. So that was a big argument. For the Gentiles, you know, Paul was really trying to say to them, hey, big thing, just stop sleeping around so much. Uh, like, you can just hear Paul when he writes. He's like, hey, I have word again that one of you has your father's wives. This is just a general reminder that's not good. Like, you can't do that. So the God of peace is the one who is going to do this work in them. That God of peace who brings unity among different cultures. And I think that's where we're going to start today. Just a couple quick takeaways. This is not going to be long. But if you hear anything else today, this work that God does in us as believers, it's total. God does it. God does the work in us. That God of peace that unifies the church and gives them a hope in a future, he himself would have to sanctify. If we expand just a little bit in that verse, it says, Now may the God of peace, that Theos Irene, himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, and I want you to hear this, may your whole spirit, and your soul, and your body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says a couple really specific things, and those words are going to be on the screen here. Number one, sanctify is hagiazo. You know, I don't speak Koine Greek. I'm not that smart, but this is, I found it, and I'm going to try to say it. Hagiazo, sanctify. Numa, you've probably heard that before. Numa is our spirit. So Paul says, sanctify hagiazo, your numa spirit. Your suke, which looks like psyche. You're going to see that's a root word, a lot of our words. That suke, our soul, our mind. Soma is our body. Paul is saying all of you, not just your behavior, not just your mind, or not just your body, not just your eternal soul so you can do whatever you want. You had a lot of confusion in that day. You had a lot of heresy in that day about the restoration that Jesus did. You had an early split in that church between Gnostic believers who thought God, you know, the transformation that Jesus did was really one of the mind. 
So Paul's saying, hey, that sanctification that's going to happen, it's going to be every part of you. Because why? Because the church is now this separate but now unified body waiting for the return of Christ. That's you and I right now. Another reason I think this is really important is because if we do not understand the definition that's here, you know, the, the pneuma, the suke, the soma, every part of us that God is going to change, he's going to do the work, that we get fixated on one over the other. We think we're good. Oh, I just stopped doing whatever arbitrary behavior. I am good now. God, you can be done. We'll never invite him to every part of our being, and that's not the salvation that God wants to give us. I think for myself, this is... Uh, really a trap if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, that you get what I call older brother syndrome. Older brother syndrome, I'm going to say I made it up, so I made it up. Older brother syndrome really relates to the story of the prodigal son. It thinks that you get enamored with following the lifestyle rules of Christianity or a belief set that you forgot who actually makes you righteous. You forgot who's actually doing the work in you. You think it's your own. You think you can earn it after a while. So the story of the prodigal son, when we're talking about the older brother, that's from Luke 15, 11. We're, hopefully we're all kind of culturally familiar with the prodigal son, but really simply, what that is, is, you know, Jesus gives this picture in the, in the book of Luke of a, of a wealthy Jewish father. We, we see he has two sons. His younger son takes the inheritance and squanders it. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. The inheritance is given after death. So you have this younger son of this wealthy father, a generous father, and he says, basically, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. I want to do what I want. He takes his money and he runs. And he experiences all the sin. He experiences everything sensory that he would want to experience. Maybe some of you have that story. You realize that after a while, nothing satisfies like the Lord. So he experiences all the sin. He has so much sin and squanders all of his money that he ends up with the pigs. So we hear, okay, he ended up with the pigs. That's gross. What they hear in a Jewish culture is the pig is not to be touched. So now this young man is untouchable. You can't sacrifice a pig. It's an abomination. Jews don't eat pigs. But now this man is lying with the pigs and he's eating their slop and he's not worth anything anymore. So he, he's thinking, I already told my dad He's dead to me. I have nothing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sell myself back into slavery at my father's because that's better than eating with this unclean animal. And that's a cultural thing at the time. You could sell yourself into slavery. So he thought, I'm going to sell myself into slavery. I'm going to go back to my dad. So he walks back to his father's. Let's picture like an estate or a farm. And God's word says, hey, you know, a long way off his father sees him. So think about it. You think your son's dead. You don't know what's happening. Dad's in this room. You can just imagine this, your beloved son. And it says the dad runs after the son. Runs. That running is a big deal. Jewish men, righteous Jewish men in that culture did not run. They had long robes. They had tassels. You're not going to get them dirty. He's not running. So the dad is now going to undignify himself for the son who said, I wish you were dead. And he's going to grab that son. He's going to put a crown on his head. He's going to slaughter the fatted calf. He's going to bring him home. That's what Jesus does for us. That's the picture of the father's love for us. If we're not careful, if we don't understand these four things here, we're going to be the brother in the field who thinks, I've always been here. I've always done what I'm supposed to do. Look at dad. He's making a big deal about this idiot. He left. Maybe you have a younger brother who's a moron. I don't. If you're watching Jordan, I love you. Um, but maybe you have a younger brother who's a fool and you're like, hey, listen, I've always been here. My dad doesn't do any of this for me. And the dad's like, hey, dummy, 
everything I have is yours always. I thought your brother was dead, and now he's returned. What God wants to do in us so we do not get puffed up on work, so we do not get bitter, put ourselves in a victim mindset, he wants to do a total transformation in us. So that hagiazo means he wants to make us holy, and he's going to do the work. That's nothing we can do. That process starts when you meet Jesus. It ends when you die. You have to let God do that. And that weight of being made righteous is not on you and I. That is not on the church. It's only on us to open the door to Jesus Christ because he stands there and knocks. He does not force himself on us. This is good news because if they're a Jewish believer reading those words, they're coming from a background of sin, ritual atonement, priest, God is far off, God is angry from us, the sacrifice is going to take our wrath and remove us until our sins are stored up again. They're, now Jesus took it, but this is still very different mindset. If you come from a Catholic background, this could be similar to that as well, where you sin, you tell a guy in a dark room, he tells you to do something, sin goes away until you do it again, you tell the guy, you do your penance. What Jesus is doing is doing away with all of it. God does the heavy lifting. So the three different words, that pneuma, that's the eternal part. That's our spirit. That's the part that's yoked together, that Christ himself will make holy if we go to 1 Corinthians 6.17. Just look at a quick cross-reference verse, because Paul uses this word over and over again. Paul's speaking to the church in Corinth, and he says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit, one pneuma with him. It's this impartation, this thing that happens when we meet Jesus, when we're yoked together with the Holy Spirit. Immediately. We are one with the Holy Spirit. That suke, that, uh, that rational mind, that spirit of power, love, and suke, that sometimes we never let God into this space. We live in an age of crazy social media, so all we have to do is hit a button, open up a door to nonsense on our phone. Guilty. And I think, man, I have not invited you to redeem the space between my ears, my mind, that you say that can happen. In Philippians 1.27, Paul says this to the church in Philippi, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. What we see him standing here is with one pneuma, with one suke, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So you're inviting God not only into your spirit initially, you're inviting him into what happens between your ears, the thoughts that you allow to have. You know, God gives us power to control these thoughts. We have the mind of Christ, the suke of Christ. Sometimes we forget that. We think we have to pay attention to every idle thought that rushes through our brain and, you know, give that some airtime. You don't have to do that. You're not claimed by that anymore. And then when it says our soma, Paul says the hagiazo is going to happen in your soul, in your mind, in your body. The soma is your body. In the book of Romans 12.1, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies, the soma, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And back to the verse. It says, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's where some of the weight sits to allow God to do the work. Christ is faithful in his return, which we're going to see in a moment. Just, just because we might think he tarries long, you know, this church thought he was coming with our lifetime and probably every generation since thought Jesus was coming back. I think we're closer now than we were, but I, I don't know. But the reason we think sometimes that God delays uh, isn't because he's absent. It's because he has mercy. 
is because he wants no one to perish. So God's mercy kind of keeps that end at bay and that responsibility to be the church that when he does return, because it could be now, it could be 20 years from now, or whenever, I don't know, is for us to be spotless. You know, we don't do that work. We allow Christ to do it, but we invite him to every aspect of our life. That big thing for us as a church is to be unified so he finds a spotless bride. Number two, I want us to understand that God is faithful. In verses 24 and 25, it says this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. That hagiazo work that God is doing, that sanctification, it does not feel good. Getting saved might feel good. You'd be at your darkest moment. And you're like, oh God, I need you. I need you. And he meets you where you're at. And you immediately feel something. But, man, doing things based off of temporary feelings is never a way to long-term success in life. It's just not. It's never a way to long-term success in following Jesus. Why? Because you're going to stop when it hurts. You're going to stop when he saves your soul but actually wants to dig into your mind or he, when he wants to change your behavior in your body. You're going to stop. You know, God is making us holy, every part of us. Because he wants the church to not only be his spotless bride, but he wants his church to be peculiar to the culture that we live in. He wants his church to be different and not swayed by the culture that we live in. Sometimes I think we need to be, uh, rather our culture is really loud about things. And sometimes the church in America is really silent about things. That's not really my problem. But um, the things that the culture is loud about, the church should have a good response for. Our best response that we're going to be is how we live and how we treat each other. The unity and harmony that happens in, it, it doesn't take a genius to know that we live in a really divisive age. And God forbid someone steps into the walls of a church who comes from a divisive culture and sees the church just as divided. We should be unified over the issues that God talks about. In Romans eight twenty eight, it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You probably know this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to to his purpose. My wife and I have been married for about 17 years um, this year. And for some of you, that's a really short amount of time. Uh, God has blessed you with a long marriage. Uh, for some of you, that's a long amount of time. You're not there yet. And we have three kids. And I remember in our pre-marriage counseling, um, it was a friend of mine who was a pastor who did our pre-marriage counseling. And just went through some generalities, like pitfalls. Do you remember your premarital counseling? Like, oh, look out for this. Do this. Maybe have, you could experience hardship here. And I'm hearing nothing. I'm just like, all right, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's just get married, and then we'll just go, we're going to Cancun. Like, whatever you're saying, it doesn't matter now. We don't have any kids now. Because if you would have outlined exactly what have happened over 17 years, like, hey, you're going to move. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have kids. You're going to have times where you have no money. You're going to have times where you have money. You're going to have times where you try to have kids and you can't. And you lose some babies. Like it's going to be this whole thing. Everything along the way, all those little hurts. Like sometimes we look back at life and we see maybe a line that goes one way, but realize the line is up and down and up and down and there's joy and there's pain and there's sorrow and there's heartache. But what God is, what God is trying to say through Paul is, hey, listen, you're not going to know everything. There's trouble ahead. Stand firm. The heavy lifting isn't on you. Like, I'm going to do a work in you and through you if you let me. Trust in the Lord. Have faith in the same God who saves you, is taking you through a process of total restoration because he loves you. Because he loves you. 
If you're a parent, sometimes you put guardrails in your life or, you know, you have to discipline your kids in a way that temporarily hurts them. But the Bible says wounds from a friend are to be trusted. So God is taking us through this process of total restoration because he loves you and he loves us and he's making us then and now and in the future should the Lord tarry into the church. There's things that I wrestle with, but take comfort that Paul is saying that God's faithful through us. And then he does something interesting. He said, brothers, pray for us. He wasn't speaking of the church. He was saying, hey, for me, this is, this is my personal request. Me, Timothy, my guys that I'm traveling with are trying to start these churches in this culture. Hey, we covet your prayers. Like, this is terrifying for us. Just see some of the troubles and the hardships that Paul went through to bring the gospel to people across the Mediterranean world. And then think what we've had to deal with. It pales in comparison. He covets the prayers of God's people as we should covet the prayers of our brothers and sisters, as we should pray for those who are leading our church. Prayer can be pretty confusing. I don't have it figured out. You know, I know that the Bible says, let your words be few. So if I have to pray in front of people, I probably say two sentences because I'm afraid to say too many words. Also says, go to your closet and shut the door. So when there's confusion there, especially if you're a newer believer, I want to talk to you today. We have an outline how to pray. So when Paul or your leaders or you need to pray for somebody, this is how you do it. In the book of Matthew 6, 7 through 15, this is Jesus talking. You know, Jesus in times of distress, he's God incarnate. He's the word. Everything was made through him, for him. Communion co-equal with God. But yet in times of distress, when he was on the earth, what did he do? He retreated and prayed with his father. He went and fasted and prayed. When he was getting ready to prepare for the cross for you and I, what had happened? You know, he went out to pray and asked his disciples to follow him. So he says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. That's key right here. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Sometimes you can come from a background and you equate that word father with hurt or absence. That's just the culture you were raised in. Maybe you had a father who was there. Maybe you had a father who was distant. Maybe you had a father who wasn't there at all. And you think this doesn't make any sense. Because my dad wasn't around and God is not like that. Your father knows what you need Before you ask him, pray then like this, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In some translations it says, or deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is God's invitation to us. For one-to-one communion. God is holy. We are not. He gives us Jesus to make us righteous. And God desires for us to spend time with him. Not for his benefit, but for ours. God is not served by our human hands. He requires nothing from us. But God wants to give us that peace that passes all understanding. Where do you get that peace that passes all understanding? From the Holy Spirit. But you really get that through prayer. Through prayer with God. God, you know what I need. I want your will to be done in my life. God, we want your will to be done in our church. 
Paul is encouraging the church as he faces opposition to hold him up and the brothers up in prayer. Like, hey, this is crazy. There's trouble coming. Be holy. Hold us up in prayer. We're about to go through it. And I think the last thing that Paul wants to give us as we close this chapter and as we close these last couple verses here is that God's number one desire in his church at that time is God is going to remove divisions. It says in verse 26 and 27, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Full disclosure, I hated reading that because I knew I had to talk about it. So when I was looking this over this week, I was like, for sure this can't mean kiss because I'm out. I don't like that. The only thing that I was okay with with COVID was the six feet. I'm not saying that if we come up and talk later, I'm, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek to that. But that just isn't my way. We're not like that culturally. My wife's roommate was from an Italian family in, in New Jersey in college. I remember we, we had to go visit them. I was so full of anxiety because I knew I'd have to kiss people on the cheek that I almost didn't want to go because I knew that was going to happen. We just, that's not how I was raised. I think I might hit a growth spurt early and I got gangly in middle school. And that's when people start hugging. But I couldn't figure out how to put your elbow in and it would like hit a girl in the mouth, and then I just stayed away from it. So that thought was terrifying. So I'm like, well, this is Paul's admonition to the church. This is his commandment. Like, greet each other with a holy kiss. For sure, he has to be saying something differently. So we talked earlier about the church being made of two very separate tribes. You have the Gentile believers, and you have the Jewish believers. A lot of times, they existed as opposition. Because Rome... That was, that was the empire at the time. Rome had Judea subjugated. They're the ones with the power. The Jews were the ones without the power. So now when one culture meets Jesus and the other culture meets Jesus, they're supposed to come together. How does that make any sense? Well, that kiss that he's talking about was cultural. It means full acceptance. That means we're the same. It would be like this aisle and this aisle being completely separate peoples, completely opposing culture, and you walking across the aisle and kissing that dude in the cheek in the right way, and whatever that is, and being, hey, like, this would tell everyone here we're the same. How many have uh, seen the movie 42? 42 about Jackie Robinson, had Chadwick Boseman. I think it was before he was Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. So in this movie, it's the true story of Jackie Robinson. He broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Branch Rickey brought him in for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was the first player. And Jackie Robinson experienced hell on earth to play the game of baseball. He got harassed. He got ridiculed wherever he went. Stadium after stadium, guys on his own team would ostracize him. So he went through this all year, beaten down, beaten down. And uh, the guy who ran the Brooklyn Dodgers was a guy named Branch Rickey. He tried to prepare Jackie Robinson for it. And it just stacked up even more. There was a guy on his team, the Brooklyn Dodgers, a guy named Pee Wee Reese. Pee Wee Reese was from Kentucky. So Pee Wee Reese had, you know, Southern guy from Kentucky. Now he's playing with a black guy on his team, breaking the color barrier, taking a lot of heat. He was probably not that happy about it. And they had a game coming up in Cincinnati. So if you know your geography, Cincinnati is right across the river from Kentucky. I'll be there actually on Tuesday night. So right across the river is Kentucky. And Pee Wee Reese knew, hey, I have family who's coming to this game. 
It's like, this, this could be really dicey for me. So the game starts. If you watch the movie, this is the awesome part. So, you know, they're warming up on the field as baseball players do. And this entire stadium is just screaming hate down on Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson, to his credit, is just taking it. He's just getting madder and madder, but he's taking it. He's taking it. And P.B. Reese does this thing where he walks across the infield. And he talks to Jackie. He makes some jokes. And then he puts his arm around him. He puts his arm around him and he says, hey, Jackie, I just want to thank you. That's a big moment because the crowd starts to heap more hurt on Pee Wee Reese. So he's now taking the pain for it. He understands maybe just a tiny bit of what Jackie's been dealing with his whole life and this whole season. He says, Jackie, I just want to thank you. He said, why? He said, because I just needed them to know. I have family up in those stands. This is what God wants to do in his church. He wants to take people from separate cultures, separate backgrounds, and he wants to remove any previous identifier that you have that gets in the way of who you are in Christ. Because in Christ, you are a new creation. In Galatians 3.27, it says this. For as many of you were as baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are Christ. Then you are Abraham's offspring, your heirs according to his promise. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is no distinction. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. That means you're a child of the promise. The Bible is one great linear story that goes from the beginning to the end. That story is of Jesus. The promise of Abraham is Jesus. And that promise existed for the Jews. From Jesus, he opened the door to everyone. Everyone is now the same, full access. Any class system is gone. Any delineators of race or culture are gone. All those bow at the feet at the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's our message here today. That unity that God wants to bring transcends anything that culture can pull us into right now. Anything that culture could pull us into then. This system here built then was also a class system. So our best example of that is probably India right now. Where you have caste. And certain castes can't talk to other castes. And then you have the untouchable caste. This system's not the same, but it's not too dissimilar. Well, Paul was saying then, hey, listen, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter if you sold yourself into slavery. It doesn't matter if you were a merchant class. It doesn't matter anything. You're all the same. Christ, grace is free. I'm making you all one. And if you let it, it's probably going to hurt. It's probably going to be messy. But you need to trust God because he's faithful, because he's turning you into something brand new. And that's our message here today. We allow God to do his good work in us, no matter how painful it may be. Let's go back and read this whole verse again. As we wrap up. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Let's close our eyes. God, we pray that we would allow you, we all make the choice to allow you to do your work in us, in our soul, in our mind, in our body, no matter how painful it may be. And we trust you and we declare that you're faithful. We lift up our brothers and sisters in prayers. We bear each other's burdens. And we ask that you help us so that division doesn't arise in us by walking humbly with each other. 
In Jesus' name, amen.